0: Hallelujah. Father, as we have beheld your glory in the revelation of your holy word, since your Spirit opened our eyes to see, Lord, we have been encouraged. We have been drawn close unto you. We have been transformed bit by bit uh, into the image of Christ our Lord. Our sin has been revealed to us. We've repented. We've trusted. And we've placed faith in Christ alone for our salvation, for the believers gathered in this room. All of this is a result of you stooping low into our experience, Father. In the incarnation, Christ came. He was revealed as fully God and fully man. He took on flesh, was born of a woman, who came and proclaimed the gospel to the lost, to those who otherwise could not save themselves, no bit of work, no bit of merit, anything to account for holiness in their standing before a mighty and powerful and perfect God. And Christ alone has accomplished the redemption and the sanctification, the purification, the atonement, the justification that our salvation required. And so we confess these things this morning. And we declare that your name is holy and worthy of praise on account of the great gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as we turn now to your holy scriptures, I pray that the Holy Spirit would use them to illuminate our hearts to more of the beauties therein contained. I pray that our spirit would be lifted, our hope would be encouraged, our eyes would look forward and beyond our mere existence, Lord, to your plan decreed from the beginning of time to redeem for Yourself a people and to secure for them glorification, salvation unto glorification, even the resurrection of the dead in the future. Lord, I pray that You would encourage us also as Your people to be equipped to share this message as a result of the proclamation of Your Word today, and that we might be joined by many others, Father, as they hear the Word As they conform, Lord Jesus, and bow their hearts before its truth, as they repent of their sins, and as they place faith in Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. Thank you for accomplishing these things by the power of your Holy Spirit alone. And thank you, Lord, for the great privilege of being included in your plan. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning on Communion Sunday, we... Go back to the book of Galatians to continue our series through this epistle of the Apostle Paul, giving instruction as the occasion warranted to correct to the standard of the once for all faith delivered to the saints, as Jude called it, or in the words of Paul, at least in the concepts of Paul, the by grace through faith alone gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. This morning, Paul illustrates this point by an allegory or an allegorical take on a tale of two sons, if you will. That's the title of this morning's message, a tale of two sons. These two sons were sons of Abraham, one by his handmaiden, his second wife, and the first, or and the other, excuse me, the second, by Sarah, the wife of promise. And they respectively are Ishmael and Isaac. I'm sure you'll remember their story. But perhaps this morning as we see how Paul relates their story to the gospel, New Revelation, Can awaken to our understanding of how God has ordered these events to teach us about Christ and our hope to be saved. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim law and gospel continuity from the greater context of Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament are continuous, they complement one another. The New Testament, as Augustine, I believe said, is the Old Revealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. Again, The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, the New Testament and the Old Testament revealed. I think Paul would agree with that statement, and I think the way he frames his argument around this illustration from the two sons of Abraham makes that point directly. Would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's Word today with your Bible open to Galatians 4, and let us consider verses 21 through 31 of God's Holy Word this morning. Listen as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according, born through promise." Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, quote, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband, close quote. Verse 28, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But well, what does the Scripture say? Quote, "...cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman." Close quote. Verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. In our introduction some weeks ago, months ago, to Galatians 4... We noted that Paul uses two illustrations in context. The first was a slave master, a slave master to or guardian to a slave relationship. In this example in chapter 3 verse 23 for instance, he says the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. He goes on to expand this guardian and slave relationship if you will in chapter 4:1 I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. This was an illustration to help explain the time-sensitive elements of the law of God of old. In other words, there were temporal conditions that would give way to their fulfillment in Christ. And in this way, the temporary provisions of the law and prescriptions of the law, especially with the ceremonial sacrifices and so forth. They were there to guard, direct, to teach, to tutor man, uh, the, those, the believing ones, in the, in, in the redemption that was to come. And thus, at the time of fulfillment, when Christ came as the perfect sacrifice, now the eyes of the faithful were opened that that which was prefigured in type and shadow before was now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. This was his first illustration in chapter 4 and proceeding it a bit in chapter 3. To help us understand the relationship between the law of old and the gospel now revealed in Christ. Here he uses a second one, and this one is kind of a tale of two sons, if you will. He uses the history, uses the biography of Isaac and Ishmael as an allegory to help us understand more of the relationship, if you will, between the covenants, Old Testament and the New, or law and gospel. He introduces his second illustration to emphasize the distinction between... The justification by faith alone gospel, remember that's Paul's central message, justification or salvation by grace through faith alone, or shortened, shorthand, justification by faith alone gospel. Paul is interested in distinguishing that from the notion, the heresy, the twisting of Scripture, uh, the false gospel of works-enabled salvation or works-augmented salvation. That is to say, there were those who were teaching in Galatia at this time that the grace of God was not sufficient to save. It was necessary, but it was not sufficient. It needed to be supplemented by our works, therefore you must become a Jew in some way. Circumcision was required in order for you to be saved. Paul railed against this false teaching. He was jealous to guard the glory of God against any impostors or any compromise or any position that would introduce anything else but the sufficient grace of Jesus Christ, holiness, obedience, salvation work alone as a cause, the ground, and the effect of our salvation. So having introduced the picture of guardian-child relationship to represent the telos, that is the plan, goal, purpose, or design of the law that is the temporal nature of certain aspects of the law pointing forward to fulfillment that was a child guardian relationship was representing that aspect now he's using an allegory or now as an allegory he cites contrast from the biography of Abraham's two sons that is to say Isaac and Ishmael can serve in Paul's words here as an allegory of the true gospel versus the judaizers heresy That was infecting Galatia. So, uh, children, who is Abraham's wife, his wife of promise, his beloved wife? Does anyone know Abraham's wife's name? Sarah, that's correct. Sarai before Sarah. When God changed her name, though, to Sarah, this is uh, part and parcel to this promise, this covenant that God was making, that He would supply an heir for Abraham and fulfill His promise that He would be a blessing to all nations through the wife of Abraham and uh, her child. Sarah was the wife of promise. God had spoken that she would bear a son and thus fulfill God's prophecy to Abraham that he would be the father of many what? Abraham would be the father of many children or nations. However, Sarah was barren, which means she could not have a child. And the promise was slow to materialize, yes, even impossible from man's perspective. And so this troubled Sarah, this troubled Abraham, assessing the situation, Abraham and Sarah conspired together and they concocted an alternate an alternate plan. If as it seemed the circumstances showed, it was impossible for Abraham to have a child by his barren wife Sarah, perhaps they could come up with a plan B. Abraham would take Sarah's Egyptian servant does anyone remember her name, Hagar, Hagar, as his second wife, in hopes that he might bear a son through her. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown is an often helpful commentary. Listen to their summary of this account After, and the way that Paul uses it to explain something of the truth in Galatians 4. Quote, after having sufficiently maintained his point by argument, The apostle confirms and illustrates it by an inspired allegorical exposition of historical facts. What is an allegory, real quick? It is a story that's meant to teach a lesson, to illustrate a point, or communicate an idea or theology beyond itself. Think of the Pilgrim's Progress, a very famous allegory. The story isn't just about a guy named Christian, but it is about the experience of Christians generally, and so his story serves to teach broader principles. Abraham is saying, and uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown comment that, or Paul is saying, that the story of Abraham's sons is an allegori- can be taken allegorically. It can be used to teach broader principles. It's an inspired allegorical exposition, in Paul's words here they say, of historical facts containing in them general laws and types. Now, they surmise a reason for this. Perhaps his reason, that is, Paul's reason for speaking this way, that is, for using allegory, was to, quote, uh, confute the Judaizers with their own weapons. You see, the false teachers that were popular in Galatia at this time, they often used in the words of Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, subtle, mystical, allegorical interpretations, unauthorized by the Spirit, they were their favorite arguments. Uh, as of the rabbis in the synagogues. So they would get real creative and allegorize and come up with these fanciful mystical interpretations. And so they continue. Paul meets them with an allegorical exposition, not the work of fancy, but sanctioned by the Holy Spirit. The history of the elect people, like their legal ordinances, had besides the literal a typical meaning. This is an example, in their words, perhaps, of Paul beating them at their own game. He uses allegory, but he uses an allegory from the Scripture based in truth to refute the false teaching. The ears of the Galatians would probably perk up as they heard Paul speak this way. After all, this is what they found fascinating about their teachers, this way of teaching perhaps. But they were getting a whole different dose here. They were getting the dose of the truth undiluted, unadulterated, unwatered down. They were returned in their focus if they would hear and listen to Paul's words. If they would take heed of the Word of God and Paul's use of this allegorical take on Isaac and Ishmael, it would turn them from their heresy, their attraction to false beliefs, the temptation to believe something of their works was essential and a ground and the means of their salvation in addition to Christ, and would return them in repentance and faith to the once for all truth The Christ or the by faith, the salvation by grace through faith alone gospel. There's contrast primarily that Paul uses this story to illustrate. So let me give you a heading. The two sons allegory serves to illustrate the following contrast. Number one, slavery versus freedom. Paul uses the story of Ishmael versus Isaac to illustrate slavery versus freedom. Secondly, these are spiritual concepts involved in the gospel. Secondly, he uses this analogy, allegory, to illustrate the difference between flesh and promise, that which is accomplished through the flesh, that which is accomplished by promise or by the Spirit. And third major point this morning, Paul uses this allegory, the two sons' allegory, to illustrate the difference between Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia, as he says, present Jerusalem, versus Jerusalem, which is above So what do these things mean? We can find this in our text today. So let's start with number one. The two sons allegory serves to illustrate the following contrast, slavery versus freedom. Note again, Galatians 4, 21 and 22. Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Contextually, it's important to note here that the law can refer to many different things and the context will give us a clue uh, what the author usually means. The law can be all first five books of the Torah, as it were, which means law as understand it. So the Torah, the first five books in general was referred to uh, then and now by Jewish folks as the law. The law can also refer more specifically or particularly to those commandments of God, by some rabbinic accounts, 611, by other rabbinic accounts, 613. Those are the imperatives. You shall do this, you shall not do that. That's another way of referring to the law. But generally speaking, Paul is using this term more broadly. Going to the law, he's, he's saying, so if you think the law is the basis of your salvation, why don't you listen to the law if it's so important to you? In other words, they were justifying their position, the false teachers were, on the grounds of the law, but Paul is saying they're actually misusing, mistreating, misrepresenting the Word of God as it indeed appears in the first five books of Moses. Paul's first admonition before he gets into this allegorical take on Isaac versus Ishmael is this commandment, listen to the law. Last service, we talked about the testimony of Noah, four times repeated in Genesis 6 and 7 was Noah did all that the Lord commanded in so many words. And we remarked how important Noah's testimony was in that he heeded God's word. He listened and obeyed. He comprehended God's instructions and he acted accordingly. Now, Paul is making a similar appeal. He's saying, listen and obey, take heed. Follow the the testimony of Noah. Do you listen to the law? Listen to the law. This is paralleled in verse 30 of our text, where Paul says, But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave, the woman, and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Again, he introduces his point, again, reiterating, What does the Scripture say? Do you listen to the law? Notice, Paul is grounding the authority of his statements in the inscripturated Word of God. He's not doing so on the basis of his ability to speak. He is not some sophist, that is, person who is hired because of his ability to persuade just on the face of it. He is not uh, steeped in the Greek ideal of, "It doesn't matter what the truth is, so long as I can convince you of it, I'm a great and influential speaker. You know, pay up. This is the way that people entertain themselves in that day. No, this is the way the false teachers are posturing themselves. They would use mystical, believable, intriguing, interesting, spiritualized stories, taking out of context and twisting the Word of God, just like false teachers do today, and moving the authority from the self-authenticating and self-revealed truthful, hermeneutically, that is, on its own terms, understood, Word of God, and substituting something fancy, something new, something improved, something an expert must understand, something that you sit at the feet of a guru to learn from and listen from like some Eastern mystic. And so Paul is saying, return to the Word of God. Do you listen to the law? Have, uh, and what does the Scripture say? Very important. So it begs the question... What is the legitimate message of the law of God? What was meant to be conveyed through those first five books in the Bible? What is in the back of Paul's mind as he speaks? Well, certainly, many of the themes in Romans, and we find these just by way of summary in the rest of his writings. What is the intent and the purpose of the law? What is the message of the Old Testament, if you will? Well, by law, we are shown to be self-helpless sinners. We are sinners who cannot help ourselves. The law shows us our sin and our inability to save ourselves. By the law, we understand that we are worthy of death, condemnation, judgment, indeed hell and the grave. The law renders everyone condemned by its perfect standard of righteousness. There is no way we can measure up. Remember Romans 3.23, as I recall, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is sin? The confession state, and I think accurately so, it's any want of conformity to or a transgression of the law of God, not meeting the standard or just breaking God's rules of His perfect holiness, that a God without spot or blemish, perfect, holy, majestic, and awesome in every jot and tittle, every last detail of His character, His attributes, and His worth, if we fall short of that to any degree, that is intolerable in His presence. Therefore, We are worthy of being banished from His presence. We are worthy of condemnation. This is the message of the law. Are you listening to the law, Galatians? Are we listening to the law today? Thirdly, God alone is righteous and holy, demanded perfect holiness, as I kind of stated already, I guess. Fourthly, no man can approach Him without a priestly mediator and sufficient sacrifice. The law taught that if you were to communicate with God, you had to go through several steps of mediation. A sacrifice had to be provided. We saw this even in the case of Noah. Noah brought seven pairs of clean animals, and a sacrifice was offered upon his landing in the new world, illustrating to us that even Noah and his family required a sacrifice. And that sacrifice spoke of one to come, the sufficient one, Christ alone in the future. And so did all of the law. The sacrifices of old spoke to man, saying that unless one dies in your place, you have no right to step into the presence of an almighty, holy God. Unless one dies in your place, there is no hope for your salvation. And unless you have a priest that is qualified and ordained to speak on your behalf, all hope is lost. There is no self-mediation. You cannot uh, earn favor with God by working or trying to be the best priest you can or offering your own work as a salvation-type sacrifice or atonement for your own sins. Impossible. The law taught that you needed a priest and you needed a perfect sacrifice, a sufficient one. And finally, the law taught us that there will come another who would fulfill the law through perfect obedience, bearing the curse entirely on our behalf. And this one had come; the Lamb of God had come. Why would you look away? Look to the law. Listen to the law. But what? Do, consider what the scriptures say. And if you do, you will look to Christ. You will not take your eyes off of Him because He is the perfect mediator, prophet, priest, king, and sacrifice sufficient. To save. So my dad has been serving in the jail at, in uh, Brainerd for some time. And uh, he asked me recently if I would join him in baptizing some inmates who have a profession of faith and have, taken, and have actually reached out saying, you know, we want to be baptized. So last week on Thursday, my dad and I went in, we sat down with three baptism candidates, and I interviewed them. And in asking them about their story, where they came from and so forth, what do you think I used to learn about where they stood in relationship with the Lord? Yes, I used the law. I asked them, do you know what sin is? Do you know what God requires? How can we be saved? Do you know what a sacrifice is? Why did Christ have to die? Why was His death necessary? And so on and so forth. And this is the way the law was intended. And it's important to remember this, the law, as it is rightly understood, reveals to us our sin, our need of a Savior, and prophesies, it prefigures, it's a type of the one to come. And so we see Paul uh, emphasizing this. We also see that this, uh, this two sons allegory serves to illustrate the difference between slavery and freedom. Bondage and freedom are illustrated in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman." The story of Isaac and Ishmael illustrates the bondage of sin in that Hagar was not the elect wife, if you will. She was the wife who was chosen for pragmatic, practical reasons, the plan B wife, the secondary wife, the plan that represented. The best idea that man and his works could come up with because he didn't walk in faith that God's promises would be fulfilled in his perfect time by supernatural means alone. And so, Hagar represented the wife of slavery. Hagar herself was a servant. She was a slave. Hagar was from Egyptian descent. This is interesting as well, and it reminds us of the, how Egypt is represented in the law. Egypt would go on to be the nation that would come to represent bondage and slavery of God's people that is to say that which is associated with Egypt generally speaking in the old testament was at enmity was not an ally with the lord and so and with God's purposes and with Israel so in Genesis 16:1 we see Hagar introduced as the slave wife if you will the Egyptian thus bondage is illustrated in this example just like those who are on who on works of the law or just like those who trust in works of the law for salvation are also in bondage notice in chapter 3 in galatians verse 10 for instance for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them So if you are going to be justified, attempt to be justified by the keeping of the law, you must keep all things written in the book of law, never fail in one. And since no one has ever done that save Jesus Christ alone, the law is a curse for you. It condemns you, if that's your only means and hope of salvation. It says, verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul goes on to make this point. Uh, Suffice it to say... That if we are merely under the law, and if there's no aspect of grace in our experience as believers, we are accursed. That's what chapter 3 tells us. Furthermore, we are imprisoned, 323. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So the law represented a, an imprisoned situation, a bondage situation, and in this case, there was a provisional element to it. There are aspects of the law that would keep Israel unique, separate, and distinct to preserve the line of the Messiah and so forth. And the law serves as a stopgap from the encroaching of wickedness. It places a provisional, it places a providential ballast stone, if you will, into the hull of society so that we are not totally overcome by our depravity. And in this way, the law restricts. It says you can do this, you can't do that, and it keeps us contained. It places guardrails and fence posts and prison walls around us, if you will. So so far in chapter 3, the law represents a curse, the law represents a prison. And finally, um, it enslaves us, 324, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Chapter 4 goes on to explain that guardian role as related uh, to that of a slave and a master. So, all these things are illustrated by Hagar, who herself was a slave and was in this situation uh, not as the elect and preferred wife of promise, but instead the backup plan. Now, the, thir- the second thing that's illustrated, slavery versus freedom in this allegory, is a freedom itself. Sarah, on the other hand, was chosen. She was loved. She was privileged. She was the elect wife, if you will, of Abraham. Just as believers are by grace through faith alone. By grace through faith, we are free from the curse of the law. We are the elect, the beloved, the beloved, and the chosen ones of God. In fact, just as Sarah was Abraham's wife, our relationship to the Lord is described in similar terms, is it not? We are the bride of Christ. We are the bride that Christ stooped low to redeem. We are the bride who he condescended to save. We are the bride who is connected to our bridegroom Christ by His self-giving, sacrificial love. And so this is illustrated by the relationship between Abraham and Sarah, the beloved and privileged wife versus the slave wife, if you will. So these two son, so this two-son allegory serves to illustrate these aspects. First of all, it's a call to listen to what the law actually says, and then Paul uses this illustration to show the nature of the bondage that belief that the law saves can bring and the freedom that we have in Christ second major point the two sons allegory serves to illustrate flesh versus promise are we go- move now to means how are we saved and what is the plan what is the strategy to provide hope in this situation verse 23 but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. This is an extension of the allegory or illustration again. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh. So by means of the flesh, uh, Ishmael was conceived, while the son of the free woman, Isaac, was born through promise. God's plan, God's idea. Was Jesus Christ a son according to the flesh? Was He a son according to the promise? Much like the experience of Sarah, there was a divine supernatural act in the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. He was born, after all, of a virgin. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus Christ. In a similar way, a barren woman shall conceive and bear a son, namely Sarah, and you shall call his name Isaac. You see, this was the son of promise. It wasn't up to Abraham, it wasn't up to Sarah to make this thing come to pass in their own strength. That's like saying, I can keep the law to get to heaven, or I can add to grace my law keeping to justify me before God the Father. No, these things are fruit, not root of our salvation. We act in obedience out of worship because God has changed our heart. We don't act according to the law in order to save ourselves. And so you see, this is a perfect illustration of this, is it not? Now, there are more verses that speak to this. Paul expands this idea in 28 through 31. So going down a few verses, he says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. He's speaking to the redeemed, the called out, the true believers in Galatia that are being tempted by these false teachers, but he's making appeal to them. If you are a true believer, if you truly understand the grace by which you are saved, you are like Isaac. You are a child of promise. But just as at that time... He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who is born according to the Spirit, so it is now. But what does the Scripture say? And then then He goes on to explain, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Then He closes, verse 31, is thought by saying, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is helpful in explaining the situation. We have an ends and means situation here, do we not? Abraham understood that God had an end for him, a plan, a purpose. That was the promise. He would be the father of many nations. But as Sarah grew older and older, with no child, as she was past menopause, as she was aging, as Abraham himself was approaching his centennial year, you know, 100 years old, the means became more and more doubtful. Yes, I understand the ends. God has purpose that I would have a son but I don't see how this is going to work. And so, under these conditions, you know, Abraham and Sarah get what they think is a bright idea, and uh, Abraham takes his secondary wife, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, someone pointed out to me years ago the difference between the first and second commandments, and it relates to this idea. The idea is this, that God has ordained the ends as well as the means. You might ask yourself as you approach the Ten Commandments, Boy, the first two seem redundant. Uh, which of you young, young people can tell me the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? Commandment number one. Does anyone know? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, adults, let's put you on the spot. Who knows the second commandment? Second commandment. Hey, you're not an adult. Yeah, you shall have, thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. So you might think these commandments are sort of redundant. The first is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second is, you shall not make unto me any graven image. But basically, what's in view here is this principle. God has sovereignly ordained the ends, worship only me, but also the means, I ordain this means of worship. You are not to worship me by making these trinkets or images or icons that convey some kind of self-contained spiritual you know, meaning and so forth. In other words, God declares comprehensive rights over our worldview and over how we should act and live in this world. We look to the Scriptures as sufficient for a standard for life and godliness across the board. And you see then how uh, a violation of this principle is in view in Abraham and Sarah's experience. Yes, we uh, hold out hope in a promise to come, that's the ends, but I think we're going to need to consider a different means. And this was only trouble, and this only illustrated the negative. Why? Because God was not only powerful to promise the expected Son, but He was also powerful to accomplish that His way and in His perfect time. What is salvation according to the law? It's trying to save ourselves, not trusting God's means. God's means is salvation by grace through faith alone in the exclusive work of Jesus Christ and the perversion of that is thinking that Christ's work is not quite enough. I can't trust His salvation that He purchased or His obedience to be sufficient, so therefore, part of my salvation must depend on me. And Paul is saying, don't forget, as illustrated in the story of Abraham, Sarah, and their two sons, that God has ordained the ends and the means. A primary feature of this analogy this analogy, is the presumption of Abraham and Sarah in pursuing fulfillment of the promise by their own effort and ingenuity rather than walking by faith. So a primary feature here is in this analogy or this allegory is the presumption of Abraham and Sarah. They're pursuing the fulfillment of the promise by their own effort and their own ingenuity. And this was in violation of the Lord. They ought to have walked by faith. Now, there was fallout for this disobedience. I call this plan B, fallout. Genesis 16, turn there if you would. We'll pick up on the story from its original account. Genesis 16, notice what happens. That is to say there are consequences for adding to God's Scripture anything of our own ingenuity and effort, as we've mentioned. And these are illustrated in our story as well. Uh, Genesis 16, verses 3 through 5. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So you see right away the consequences of this kind of perversion. Right away, after Hagar conceives, she looks with disdain, she looks with contempt, with disrespect upon her, her uh, master, or, uh, uh, namely Sarah, Sarai at this time. This illustrating to us that those who cling to their works for do- justification declare themselves enemies of grace. They have contempt for the true gospel. Anything that modifies, alters, add to, so-called improves the gospel of Jesus Christ and what is sufficiently given to us in Scripture alone, it is a contempt for the true gospel. It is looking down your nose and thinking, by my own efforts or ingenuity, I can recast the message of the Bible, modify it in some way, improve it for the demands of a modern culture. Anytime that this gospel is altered in this way through false teaching, it is a contemptuous thing. It is looking down one's nose, disrespecting God's word, God's power, God's way. It is having contempt for the true gospel, declaring yourself an enemy of grace. Now, there was more fallout still in the historical example of Abraham getting this you know, idea to take a second wife, never going to work out great. But it not only represents a diminished view of the Abrahamic covenant, in other words, yes, God might have promised, but I don't think He has the power to accomplish it through the wife of promise, so let's come up with another way. And in that way, it diminished the view of the Abrahamic covenant in the eyes of Abraham and Sarah, and as a poor testimony to those around them. But it also affected their own marriage as well. Their covenanted relationship in their family, this lesser covenant, if you will, took a hit. There was animosity now that was bred. There was strife in the home. There was conflict that was the result of this sin. There was now blight on the integrity and legacy of Abraham. And ultimately, there was an alienation of the servant Hagar from her uh, master's care. Eventually, eventually, she was ostracized. She was put out from their covering, and sent away. So this fallout of acting according to the flesh and not trusting the promise or the work of the Spirit, it sowed all kinds of seeds of discord. And these persisted even for generations. Psalm 83.6, the author of the psalm identifies Ishmaelites, the descendants of Ishmael, as a thorn in the side of Israel continuing. So there was animosity that continued for generations as a result of not taking seriously all of God's Word." So Paul is saying, the problem of modifying the gospel and its consequences and the fear of the Lord in light of this ought to be a reality for you, listen to what the law has already laid out. Consider the consequences of not trusting God's means. Look what happened to Abraham and his family. Do you want to put yourself in that kind of situation? Well, then stop listening to these false teachers. Turn from this perversion of the truth and turn back to Christ alone. God ordains the ends and the means, and it is never worth taking matters into your own hands. If you seek to move forward according to the flesh, you will only reap hardship, judgment, upon yourself in the form of chastisement unto correction, hopefully, but in the worst case, it would demonstrate you didn't understand the gospel in the first place and show that you were indeed under the condemnation of the law until such time as you repented and trusted in grace alone to save you, the work and the, and the power and the supply of Christ and His work on Calvary. This conflict is irreconcilable and it continues to play out. Notice even in our text today, Paul relates the conflict between Hagar and Sarah and the stress in this family relationship, he relates it to the conflict that exists between true believers and false teaching. Notice in verse 29, just as at the same time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Paul said in another place, there needs to be factions among you. There needs be for the truth's sake. In other words, Paul was jealous to put, pass on to the church means of discernment so that they knew who their enemies were. And he said, just as, in this example, just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac and there was jealousy and animosity between them, so the false teachers are a threat to you. There will always be conflict between false teaching and the truth of the gospel, Look to the Scriptures, look to the teaching of Paul to know what the uh, non-negotiable aspects of truth are, and then recognize any perversion as such, and realize that they thumb their nose on grace, that those teachings despise the truth of God, that they take into their own hands and seek to work out by means of the flesh the fulfillment of the promise. And by that standard, they ought to not only, they remain not only our persecutors, but they also ought to be excommunicated from the brethren. Yes, strong language, but Paul continues. Verse 30, But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Paul is saying just like the situation was such at the time of this trying to, you know, acquire a son by means of the flesh, it necessitated a separation A putting aside and excommunicating of Hagar and Ishmael from the family covering of Abraham? So, put out false teachers from among you. Do not entertain ideas that add to the gospel works or merit as the ground of salvation or any other non-negotiable truth compromised by the teachings of today. Separate yourselves from it. Realize how high the stakes are and take seriously the fear of God and your responsibility in light of these things. And this is what uh, Paul is emphasizing by way of this allegory. So again, in summary, two sons in this allegory serves to illustrate slavery versus freedom and the condemnation of the law versus salvation by grace through faith alone. Secondly, trusting in the means of the flesh, your own efforts and ingenuity versus the promise or the Spirit, that which God accomplishes sovereignly by His own hand. That leads us to the third point this morning, Mount Sinai versus Jerusalem above. Paul goes on to explain in verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. So who are the women again? Sarah and Hagar. Paul compares them to two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, he says, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. It occurs to me, I I have an illustration for you. Of how this might apply in even yes indeed even in our modern day um, today there yet remains misunderstandings and the opportunity to be deceived by uh, false teaching and so forth and uh, it comes to us on many fronts. Paul is saying he is instructing the church to recognize the difference of Jerusalem below, if you will, or present Jerusalem and Jerusalem which is above and free. And he says, she is our mother. What is he referring to here? Well, he is referring to a of religious ideas through humanism, man's ingenuity and man's efforts, as we said, but then it's named the gospel or it's named religion or it's named Judeo-Christian values or things like this. And this is prevalent in our culture and in commentary today. I was listening to two commentators speak with one another on a podcast recently. Let me give you this as an illustration. One was a professed evangelical Christian, the other an Orthodox Jew. The professed evangelical Christian says to the Jew, if, any, if anything speaks to me of God's truth, it's the music of Bach. And when we listen to the music of Bach, you and I who disagree on the divinity of Christ, You and I are swimming in that stream, and we are there together, and that stream is carrying us to the same place. This is absolutely, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that you and I are going to be arguing about the truth in heaven, and that the stream of Bach, which speaks to us of God, is going to take us there. True or false? Absolutely false. Now, do you see what, in failing to recognize Jerusalem, which is below, a perversion of religious ideas through the efforts and ingenuity of man, and that which is forever in the realm of, and, and, and the, uh, and for God Himself alone to define through His holy, holy Scripture, in failing to hold to that distinction, the ideas that were conveyed right here are, you and I are no longer, you and I have a shared hope of salvation in the Savior Jesus Christ, but you and I have a shared hope of salvation in the music of Bach. That is ridiculous, but you see what you sacrifice when you make, give quarter to religious ideas that you want to make friends with, but do not believe that Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life? You have to look for another Savior, maybe your love, or the common uh, uh, goodness of humanity, or ideas that we share as a culture, or music that we appreciate, and so the truth The way, the truth, and life that is the exclusive claim of the Bible and Christianity gets reduced to another perverted, idolatrous Savior. We must fight for the gospel in our day and age, just as Paul had to fight for it then. So if you hear a commentary such as I have just given you example, your discernment is tuned in and you realize, nope, what that guy just is, is declared that salvation is available through Uh, the transcendent experience of music, and that is not true. Salvation is available through Christ alone. What he should have done is called his friend to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah prophesied of old and revealed in time the only way of salvation. Mount Sinai, uh, below Jerusalem, below if you will, or present Jerusalem versus Jerusalem above. You see, Jerusalem had rejected Jesus Christ, generally speaking, at this time. They had said, "'His blood be on us and our children.'" And generally, aside from a remnant, the Israelis at that time had rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Paul said he was preaching the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but he made no bones about it. There was no salvation in Jerusalem below. Anyone, Jew, Greek, pagan, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, man, woman, must believe in the one true gospel. There was no other way of salvation. And if he ever heard compromises being made or alliances being formed that deny that Christ alone was our hope for salvation. He was rigorously fighting back, violently through his proclamation of truth, if you will, fighting back against that heresy. So this can happen today in many different forms. Let's close with with this citation in our text. Paul says, The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear." Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Turn with me, if you would, in closing to Isaiah 53 and 54. Our worship text this morning was this included this citation, and that's Isaiah 54. Of course, this is followed by Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is the prophecy... Of the ground of our salvation, which I trust that you are all quite familiar with, I try to refer to it in preaching often, because this is one of the most important central passages in all of Scripture. Among its words, we find in verse 4, surely He, of course, speaking of Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but He was wounded for our transgressions. Who is wounded for our transgressions, children? Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. When did this happen? When was Jesus crushed for our iniquities? On the cross. cross. Very good. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. He goes on to expand that this was the will of God to crush Him in verse 10, that God Himself, the Father, put the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to grief. When His soul made an offering for sin, He shall see His offspring he shall prolong his days and he goes on and to hopefully proclaim the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. And so we move from this ground of our salvation, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Christ on Calvary prophesied to a prophecy of its fruit. Verse 54, sing, O barren one who did not bear. And this reminds us of Sarah, does it not? Even in the allegorical, uh, our allegorical connections, Sarah was barren and now the prophet sings, Sing, O barren one uh, who did not bear, bring forth into singing and cry aloud, You who have been, not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. In this prophecy, we are moving beyond the individual promise to Abraham to its spiritual reality, for all who are included in the promise. We in the book of Hebrews are called heirs of Abraham, and in Galatians as well, adopted sons and daughters who are included in the promise. That is to say, because Christ died as prophesied in Isaiah 53, so the Galatians who are true believers have come in as fulfillment of the promise in Isaiah 54, where it's prophesied. And this is why he says, verse 2, Enlarge the place of your tent, let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, so on and so forth. God will redeem Himself a people. He will do so from Galatia. He will do so from Cross Lake. He will do so from every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth. But He will do so only one way, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Not according to the ingenuity and work of man, but according to the promise, according to the Spirit of God. And we are testimony to this fact if you believe that Christ's work is your salvation. So live in light of this truth and do not let it ever be corrupted by some false teachers, some fast-talking charlatan that would want to put a different spin on your religious ideas or convictions. Always return to the Word of God and consider the proclamation of God's Holy Word your only and your sufficient standard. Let us close in prayer as we transition to communion. Dear Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that by the power of the Spirit's use of the proclamation and the reading and the study of your word, you can write these things upon the table of our hearts. You can conform our mind to the knowledge of the truth. You can produce fruit in our lives even the regeneration of the lost and the dead unto new life in Christ, confessing hope and faith in Jesus Christ alone. We pray that you would continue to march through history, earning for yourself and your glory a people from every nook and cranny and corner of this globe to the praise of your great name. As we celebrate communion at your table, may we remember what was prophesied of old and what is emphasized by Paul, that it is the stripes, the shed blood of Christ, it is his broken body, that is alone our hope for eternal life. and all this, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.